I'll be reading out of Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, to those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. We are in the book of Romans, and we have been for several months, and it feels a little bit like we're round and third headed for home, doesn't it, in this book that we've been in for, for months together? Uh, I just want to plead with you that uh, while we are round and third, that's not the time to let up. Like, when you're round and third, the coach is still waving you in fast to, to get all the way in, so continue to, to dig into Romans. I, I, we will readily admit, like, we've, we've kind of hit the climax of all that Paul has been trying to accomplish and do in terms of content for the book of Romans, but we're still uh, with plenty of material left to equip and instruct us. Indeed, we could say that the thesis of Romans was in chapter 1, right? That, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that in this gospel that the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, and he's been excluded describing and explaining that very thesis for, for 15 chapters. And, and so we've already hit that thesis and we've kind of hit our climax. And, and, but here in this passage this morning, we don't get the thesis of the, the book. We get the goal of, of Paul's ministry. And so again, the, the content is so important as we round third and head home that we, we need to listen well to the word of the Lord. He, he tells us the goal, Paul, his goal of, the, of his ministry. And the goal of his ministry is the goal of worship. That he specifically has a, a ministry to the Gentiles for this very purpose, that he might proclaim the gospel to them, they might be transformed by it, and give worship to the one true living God. So he writes of this ministry, of his saints, to, to the saints that were in Rome, and then he's going to broaden it out a few different times in this passage. So he said, here's what we've been able to do with you guys and accomplish in this writing. Here's what I've been able to accomplish with the Gentiles a little bit more broadly. And here's what I hope to accomplish in the life of the world, in the nations all around. And what he wants from this is that he wants saints he wants those who are at Rome and those who exist to trust in Christ here in Enid to capture the same vision that he had. The same vision of the gospel going out and reaching people all over the place so that they might be worshipers of the one true living God. And so he begins this final section describing this goal of his ministry and he begins with, let's look at what I did with you guys. In verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And Paul is, is putting into practice in his writing here what he told them to do in chapter 12, verse 10, where he said to them, you need to love one another with brotherly affection. You hear that word brothers there again? Like, hey, brothers, I'm writing to you. I want to remind you of some things. And, and he's, what is he doing with them? He's outdoing them in showing honor. He's going first. He, he wants to prefer them in honor. And so he says to you, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers. He, he has both affection in this, as he writes verse 14, and great honor for them. Surely, after all the content that he's been covering with them, and including the content that he just got through of, of stronger and weaker, and, and how we connect and work together in a community of the, as the people of God, surely this encouragement, surely this affection towards them is timely. 
You see, the Roman church wasn't planted by Paul, so it's specifically encouraging. Indeed, we don't even think that the Roman church was planted by an apostle. Likely, no apostle has been there. Likely, I mean, Paul hasn't been there, and likely no other apostle had been there either, which is in its very existence then uh, just a testimony to the power of the gospel itself. That likely what happened, that there was no uh, apostolic influence over this church, and yet there they exist in the heart of Rome, the people of God in a world that's, that's caught up in worship of other gods. Here is a particular people that's full of strong and weak, Jew and Gentile, worshiping together the one true living God, and the apostles didn't have their hands all over it. It just took root because likely what happened, they had heard the, the gospel preach. Well, I guess here's the apostolic influence. They heard the gospel preach at Pentecost and were transformed by it and then just went home and started not only living that gospel out, but sharing that good news with other people. So in the center of Rome, there's saints of God and they're standing. They're holding fast to that gospel and the testament to God's goodness and the power of the gospel. But you have to wonder at times, because that's their story, had they questioned some things? Had they had some doubts? Are we on the right track about this at all? How many times did they wonder that? How many times did they wonder, are we kind of laboring in vain? Are we doing this in vain? Paul had those kind of doubts and concerns at times, right? He writes different churches like, man, I hope I haven't labored in vain. Uh, he's got concerns that that's true. So maybe they're like Paul and they had some concerns. Are we on the right track here? Are we setting our lives about the right kinds of things? And then Paul, an apostle, specifically commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles, writes to them. And he writes this great letter of the book of Romans that we have in our scripture. And he says to them in verse 14, hey brothers, I'm satisfied about you. How warm, how affectionate, how honoring of a statement that that is. A, a statement of affirmation and commendation after all that he said to them from a trustworthy apostle, one who has specifically been commissioned to the Gentiles. He writes to a church that's full primarily of, of Gentiles and says to you, I, I am satisfied with you. A, a few years ago, we had a, an assessment to join our church planning network. And... and we had already existed for several years as a church. We were already going. We had a, a firm grasp, I think, on what we were trying to accomplish and making disciples here in Enid. But we had this assessment come in, so it was a little bit strange. Thinking like, what are you, you going to say like, no to us, even though we're already a church that's existing? It's, it felt a little awkward, right? We've been already been going on for so long. We've been carrying this thing out. So to have like, someone come in and say, like, failure would be like, uh-oh, like, this, this is strange. But, but in the assessment, and this is a testament to, to the work of God in, in you guys, we were overwhelmingly affirmed at the very start, no exceptions, they just let us in. And, and although we had already existed as a church, it was nice to have some people from the outside, people that we knew and, and loved and, and trusted in a sense, come in and say, you guys are doing it, keep going, and we, we would love for you to be a part. And that's a little bit what Paul is doing here. Like, they were already at church, they already exist, the gospel had taken root, but here they have this apostle to the Gentiles write a letter to them and say to them, hey, I'm satisfied with you. Man, there are just times when churches need to hear some affirmation and encouragement. You think of the book of Revelation. Christ himself, he says to some of these churches, like, let me commend you on some things because there are some things that we need to hear. I mean, just my past week, I've, I've heard of some of the goodness of people expressed as they're trying to show generosity to one another in body life of various ways of how they're trying to help and serve and show goodness, not only to one another, but to the world. I've heard this past week of how others began to, to take more seriously the command that we heard in chapter 15, verse 7, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us and take practical steps in that direction. There have been times in here where if you didn't know that there were a bunch of young babies and kids around here, you would think that the exchange of, of Tupperware in the foyer would be strange. But you hear the babies crying during the service. You're like, okay, I get it. We're helping out one another. We're showing some goodness to one another. I, I want to commend you. Like every week, I'm so encouraged that your desire to hear the truth, to gain knowledge, enough to listen to a guy like me preach longer than a guy like me should preach because you love the, the truth and you want to hear from God's word. And so I'm going to push on that a little bit further and say, let's uh, just, let's hear God's word and I'll go longer than I should. And 
And learning is happening all around us in middle, little conversations, in text messages, in home groups. There are times so often when I think of, of when I'm listening to conversations from people throughout the week or when I'm going to home group, I'm thinking like, man, I've thought about this all week. And, and yet that's an aspect of the text I hadn't thought about in that kind of way. That kind of instruction of one another is going because we have a people who are able to instruct one another. And, and I'm so glad that God has made me a part of this church at this time that we get to do life together as a family. I'm so thankful to God for that. The, the last couple of weeks, I've been able to jump into the youth home group and they do something where they share, where they're praying for one another, their highs and their lows. And each week, it is hard for me not to say, you know my high from the last week, if I'm looking from, from Wednesday back, is I'm saying Sunday, my, my time together here in this place is such a highlight because I love being with God's people, singing God's praises, preaching God's word. It's just good, good, good. It doesn't mean it's not hard, but it's still so, so good. Because here we have a people that God is in them. And what we're carrying out is what he said in chapter 15, verse 6, that together we're with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is good for the soul. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity just to pause and say these things, words of affirmation and accommodation publicly. That's what Paul does for them. But this truly is something that we should be doing for one another. Now, this isn't to be exclusively something that's from public or just from leadership because I know the reality that we're walking in and the reality is, if you don't know it, you need to know it, that no one in here is over-encouraged. There's not one person walking around in here over-encouraged. And so Paul says, right, you need to love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. You need to go first in showing honor to those that are around you, your brothers and your sisters. And so make sure to pause and consider them. What might stir them up? What might encourage them? What might boost them along in their walk in, with Christ and, and affirm it? Paul is a little bit emphatic here in verse 14. Did, did you notice that? You, you might think like, Paul couldn't really be meaning the things that he's saying in verse 14. Did you get that when you read it? But, Paul, are you, are you sure that they're full of goodness? Is it all knowledge that you're talking about? You're like, are you being, are you using hyperbole here, Paul? You, you think that because that's how over the top his affirmation and commendation is of them. It, it shows his desire so much to encourage them that he, he could be accused of, of hyperbolic language. Have you ever been accused of that in your encouragement for others? Man, Paul, he's emphatic. Now, what he's not doing is he's not, he's not using flattery here. That would be a sinful way of using words and language. He's not using flattery. He is coming and he is giving them accommodation and affirmation that's sincere. He is commending what is commendable. He is commending what is God-given fruit in their lives. And that's what we need to do with one another. I see so much of it. I'm so encouraged by it. But we need to point some of those things out to one another and in his affirmation, he commends those three, three marks, three things, three characteristics of these Christians together. He says, verse 14, you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Man, that's quite the commendation for the saints. Wouldn't you love for that to be shared of you? That you are full of goodness, that, that you are filled with all knowledge, that you are able to instruct. That's a great commendation. He, he has already encouraged them. In, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, your faith has been known. It's proclaimed in all the world. And so what he's pointing out here is that, that, that faith that they have, which is faith in Jesus, it's not necessarily overwhelmingly strong faith or overwhelmingly pure faith, but it is faith that is in the right object. It is faith that is in Jesus. It is the faith that saves. And he's saying here in verse 14, the fruit that's flowing from that faith is that you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And what he does with these three is he links faith and virtue. It, believing and doing. He's affirming the gospel's power that it has been work in their minds and hearts and in their deeds, in their believing and their, in their living. And the fruit of it is seen in these things, in these three ways. He is affirming that the gospel power has been at work so that they are moved as people who were these old selves are now these new selves. That now they are walking in the newness of life that they have been bought and redeemed for by Christ. That they are no longer slaves to sin, but they are slaves to righteousness. And for Paul and in Scripture, those two things always go together. 
We try to separate those out too often and they just cannot be uh, pulled apart. That the gospel's power is seen not only in salvation but also in sanctification. That the gospel's power is seen in not only in our believing but in our doing. That faith, true faith, if it's in Christ, is faith that has fruit in its living Grace is the grace that saves and transforms. And Paul is just saying, not only is that true of them because they're true Christians, but I want to point it out to you. And so he gives these three things. We could call them three marks or three characteristics of their life together, which again would be consistent of their, some of their lives individually. So he says, you are full of goodness. Now Paul, when he comes and says you're full of goodness, he would still affirm what he said in chapter 3, verse 23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He still affirmed that. He would still affirm of them as saints that are in Rome. You're still very much in the middle of Romans chapter 7. That you still have this flesh that's with you and you do some things that you don't want to do and you don't do some of the things that you should be doing. Like, that flesh is still there, so you're still wretched in a sense and need to cry out, who's going to save me? And you're still looking for the coming deliverance that's coming through Christ. They're still in the middle of seven. He's not saying there's no sin present in them anymore, that they're only full of goodness. But to say they're full of goodness is to commend them for their character as a people, that their character as a people is more consistently could be pointed out as full of goodness than anything else, that they're a kind people, a generous people. They are goodness. Here's part of goodness, an essence of goodness. They're opposed to evil. They're against it. And truly, when someone should say to us that we're full of goodness, that should never be for the Christian hyperbole. Because goodness is a fruit of what, Paul says in Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. It's not hyperbole. He's just affirming the work of the Spirit in them. They're full of goodness. He says, secondly, that they're filled with all knowledge. Now, again, he doesn't mean that they have exhaustive knowledge so that they have no need to learn. Or he wouldn't have written the letter. Or he wouldn't have said, you know, like implied in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, you know, God has gifted, he's given prophets and apostles, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Like implied in that is not only that we need to be taught and that we need to learn, but that God is going to give us what we need for that to continue, that to go on. We need to be taught and we need to learn. So he's not saying you have nothing left to learn. What he is saying is that you have a firm grasp of the Christian faith. You have, a, you have a sufficient knowledge of Jesus and the gospel. You, you know of the mercies of God so that you can, in light of those mercies, present your life, your body as a living sacrifice to God. That they have enough to not only survive in the center of a pagan culture in Rome, but to thrive there. That's the knowledge he's talking about. They have all knowledge to not only have peace with God, which is an amazing knowledge, right? Knowledge of Christ and his redemption, but they have the knowledge that they need to live in harmony with one another as he's told them to do in chapter 12 and verse 15. They have the knowledge to be people who are, verse 13 of chapter 15, full of hope and joy in believing and peace in believing that they can be a people abounding in hope. They have all knowledge that they need for all of those things. And that's what he means when he says that you are full of knowledge. And thirdly, he says that they are able to instruct. They have enough understanding of the gospel that not only can they share it, indeed, that's how the church began, that they understood the gospel enough to be able to take it and to have it take root in the city of Rome and to have saints around them gathered together. But they have enough understanding of it to be able to instruct others right that that's what he's saying you're able to instruct you guys can turn to one another and you are able to carry out the idea that christ has sent christians on to disciple one another make disciples and we have in our membership process we, we do an interview with one of the pastors and one of the questions that we always ask is is what is the gospel and part of the reason for that is that real Christians not only understand the gospel, but they're able to instruct with the gospel. They're able to share what it is. If you can't do that, I'm not sure what you mean by saying you're a Christian. Because those who are Christians say, I trust in Jesus. And all Christians are not just saved, they're saved and sent. So they have an understanding of the gospel enough to be able to say, I could proclaim it in some capacity to another person to be able to understand it so that they too could be saved. 
And so that's why we ask the question, but that's what Paul is saying here. You guys are able to instruct one another. Instruction, it gets at the idea of this People, these saints being mature enough to admonish, that's the idea of instruct, admonish them, which is at the heart of admonishment is a sense of correction. He's like, you, you guys are, are at the place where you're able to do that. You can accomplish that. Where it's needed, you can do it. In, in Colossians chapter 3, it's another place where he talks about admonishment. He says that you guys are able to, chapter 3, verse 16, same kind of thing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. They can turn to one another with the knowledge of the truth that they have, full of goodness to exhort, correct, instruct one another. And, and obviously, given the context which we find this in, where he's dealing with the life in the body, life together, strong and weak, Jew and Gentile, given that context, he's not saying, as some had some weaknesses in their faith, that they have exhaustive knowledge, that they're able to instruct one another on everything, that they've got it all figured out. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that everyone in their church is equally full of goodness, that everyone is equally filled with knowledge, that everyone is equally able to instruct one another. But he's saying together, you saints, you guys can do this. You can instruct one another together as a body, together as the saints. They're not lacking in capacity for instructing one another. And, and that in and of itself is a commendation of their maturity. Because what he's not trying to say is that you are a church that's really critical of one another. And there's a lot of wisdom that goes into that to make you say, we know when to admonish, when to instruct, and when we're just being a critical jerk. And he's saying, you guys are able to do that. You've been able to just kind of figure that out, parse that out in your life with one another. And so that's how he says, you're able to instruct. And with these three, what Paul is doing is he gives them, in a sense, like to, here's a brief description, here's a brief picture of a healthy Christian and, and a healthy tr Christian life together within community. That faith ought to be flowing out at least in these three marks. So we need to ask, church, could these three mark us individually? And do they mark us together? Are they present are they present enough for someone to be able to emphatically affirm them? Almost to the point where we would say, hey, you're, you're going over the top with how you're affirming the things that are present in my life. Could people be accused of that in speaking of you individually and of our life together? If these three marks aren't present, or, or perhaps if they're, they're flickering or faint, then, then what we need to do is we need to examine not first the fruit of these things, but the roots. We need to look first at our faith and examine our faith. Is it real faith in Christ? And then when we look to the root and we make sure that root is right, with the right root, we, we then don't look at these three things and say, well, I've got the right root, now I'm going to take over in my own strength and, and force these things home. You know, Paul has instructed them so carefully, right? Your life in Christ is a life that is you know, vitally connected to Christ. You are united to Him. That the life you live, it's Him living in you and through you. That you are walking in the newness of life because you're united to Him and your old self has died along with Him and raised with Him. And so we don't go back and, and take over in our own strength and say, well, I'm going to just show my goodness and I'm going to be good. Or I'm going to learn, 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 and I'm going to be full of knowledge, and then I'm going to instruct, instruct, instruct. That's a sure recipe to destroy community. But instead, we go to the root, and we go to who we are in Christ, and what he has done in us and through us, and how he is producing in us some righteousness. And, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is in us that enables us to walk in obedience to Christ. And we just keep looking back at that root and saying, you, you're going to need to do this. If I'm going to be the person that you made me to be and that you have saved me to be, then you're going to need to produce these things in me and through me. But if you look and you have the right root, that you are trusting in Jesus, that he is your only hope, then you can expect fruit to come out because those two things always go together. And it's not pride of us to, to know that those, those, the fruit there is present. That's just normal Christianity. It ought to be present because that's what Christ always produces in his people. So if it's present in your life, it's okay for you to hear this morning, as Paul says to them, that I'm satisfied with you. 
You don't have to push that away as if God could never be satisfied with you. No, what he has accomplished in you is something he's still accomplishing. And he can look at that and say, I'm satisfied in what I'm doing there. And so you don't have to push this away and say, like, I I don't want to give in to pride. You don't want to give in to pride. But it's not pride to say, look at the fruit that Christ has produced in me. That that's actually real and present. And I'm so thankful to him for it. Because apart from him, it wouldn't exist. That's not pride. That's rightly looking at the root and fruit of our lives. And so what we need to do is we can receive that encouragement that the scripture gives. And we can let it fuel our life further with life with God in our individual lives and in the church, which is the context. We can keep pouring out goodness. We can keep learning and being filled with knowledge so that we can, in light of all that knowledge, continue to present our lives as a living sacrifice to God, responding rightly to what we know with our living and being. And we can continue to live and instruct one another in community rightly. Now, this commendation doesn't mean that they are all in the same spot or they're not lacking anything or the rest of verse 15, or verse 15 as he moves to that, would, wouldn't make much sense. And it does make sense. And so he's not saying again that all these things are always true of all of you all the time. No, he looks in verse 15 and he talks to him about some other points. He says, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. You remember how boldly he's spoken in the book of Romans, right? I mean, think about chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he's not content to just say, uh, that's it. But he says, let me me show you what this looks like. That you were made to give thanks and honor to God, but you're not giving thanks to God. You're made to worship and serve the one true creator, but you're not serving the creator. You're serving created things and worshiping them. And then you're being even conformed to those images, the images of things that you should not be giving yourself to worshiping or becoming like. Or in chapters 2 through 4, how he's described to them so boldly what does and does not justify before God. What does and does not make one righteous before God. He says you look to the law, you look to circumcision, you think your heritage is going to save you and justify you, and that's not true at all. What saves and what justifies is Christ. Alone, He says that in chapters 2 through 4. Or in chapter 6, you could think of what he says about our union with Christ. How we're united to Christ. You were slaves to sin, but in Christ, you're now slaves to righteousness. Or how in chapter 8, how he boldly spoke of their life in the Spirit. That they are no longer those who, who would cry out and have no father listening to them. They're not slaves to fall back into fear. They have the Spirit given to them to cry out as sons of the living God. Abba, Father, they have this confidence now because of the Spirit given to them of their future glory, even though it looks like everything is just moving towards death, moving towards death. He says, actually, you're moving towards future glory. That's bold. And then we go to chapters 9 through 11, and we saw all sorts of him boldly proclaiming, hey, guess what, guys? God is God. And because God is God, he's the sovereign one. He'll show mercy to whom he will, and he'll harden to whom he will. That's his prerogative as God. He spoke boldly about all of those things. They needed some of that. He says, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Why? Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, he he looks at his ministry and he views his ministry to the Romans. And then he bronzes it out and he views it a little more broadly. Not as a a ministry that's rooted in his worthiness. Not as a ministry that's rooted in his ability or his theological acumen. He he sees his ministry and the ministry that he's pouring out to the Roman church and the ministry that he's pouring out to the Gentiles at large as a ministry that's rooted in the grace of God. That God's grace to him, you remember that kind of grace? The the kind of grace that transformed a a man who was, he was single-handedly the biggest threat to the church and to the gospel at his time, and grace intercepted him, transformed him on the road to Damascus, knocked him to the ground, and sent him forward, not as against the church, but of the biggest, maybe, proponent of the church in his time. Saved him and sent him, that kind of grace. And that grace is the same grace that is extended out through him in his writing, in his ministry. That's what he says, uh, uh, grace given to me, I want to extend out to you this ministry that Christ has handed to me. And so he's not writing boldly to the Romans to be critical. He's not writing them to be nitpicky and, and find their flaws. 
He's not trying to show his skill or, or how much depth of knowledge he has in theology that they lack and that he just wants to come in and be God's gift to them. He wants to gift them with something, but not himself, with the grace that God had given to him. He wants to extend that out to them. And so he says, I have written by way of reminder to reassert, to reaffirm, to give more texture, perhaps more depth to the things that you guys have already known to be true about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's writing to be a gracious means of sanctification. And notice here that there is a clear link between their sanctification and Paul's writing and Paul's reminder. Those things are vitally connected together. There's the sanctification of the Spirit connected with the means of Paul's writing and reminders to them. This letter and all of its reminders that it gives to them are a means of grace for their sanctification, for their growing in Christ's likeness, and that's how it goes for the Christian and for the church. That the same Holy Spirit who in chapter 5 verse 5 was poured into our hearts showing us the greatness and the glory of God's love for us in Christ is the same Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and enables us and empowers us to walk out our new life in Christ Jesus as chapter 8 talked about. This life that's following the law of Christ. This life that's crying out to God as Abba Father. This life that's groaning but is longing for and has steadfast hope in this new glory. That salvation is not the Holy Spirit's endgame. The words here that he says of, these, of them, he says, I'm, I want to make an offering that's acceptable, comma, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Acceptable, and, and then he describes it for further, those are appositional phrases there. Acceptable and then sanctified by the Spirit. They're connected. That's the Holy Spirit's agenda. That He wants to make us acceptable. In other words, He, he wants sanctification to happen. God wants to save and to sanctify. Not just one or the other as if He's picking and choosing. So He sends the Holy Spirit to pour love into the heart and to sanctify the Christian. To empower walking with Christ and living each moment for the glory of God. The Spirit is the same Spirit who does both of those things. So the means that he uses to save and sanctify, did you catch it in these verses to the Romans? At least in part, it's in these writings and reminders. Paul understands his writing as a writing that's inspired and carried along by the Spirit of God. And he sees his writing as a means to their sanctification. His reminders of the gospel and its depths as a means of their sanctification. I don't think Paul is overstating his writings' importance here. I think he understands them rightly as a means that the Spirit uses to bring sanctification in the life of his people. That the Holy Spirit is using the means of his reminders in writing. Now one man of the past, J.C. Ryle, says that the means of grace are such as Bible reading, private prayer and regularly worshiping God in church, wherein one hears the word taught and participates in the Lord's Supper. I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make much progress in sanctification. I can find no record of any eminent saint who ever neglected them. They are appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which he has begun in the inward man. Our God is a God who works by means, and he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he can get on without them. Indeed, I think we could say that the Holy Spirit, if it dwells inside us, it, it, it creates people who don't want to get on outside those means of, of the Spirit. We don't want to get on outside of hearing God's word and praying and being with God's people and partaking of the things which he has told us to partake. Those who have the Holy Spirit don't want to get on without those things. They, they don't want to be people who are just merely saved and not sanctified. The Holy Spirit never does that. He always will save and give this longing for our final and full redemption. Chapter 8 talked about that. The Holy Spirit does both those things, not one or the other. He does them both. Even if it's just by way of reminders and there's no new information in our lives, no one has arrived to the place where the Holy Spirit says, I don't need to hear that anymore inside of you. And I don't want to use that truth inside of you to change you at all. That never happens. The Holy Spirit is there. And here what we have is this posture of, I want to take part in the means that God has given in order to receive and learn and hear and continue to grow in my sanctification because I haven't arrived yet. 
I'm not there. Final glory is coming. We have sure and steadfast hope. But in the meantime, we need to wait and hear and listen and wait and learn and give ourselves to these channels of God's grace for which he says it's always going to flow down these channels. So even as verse 14 is true, that we're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another, apparently verses 15 and 16 are still necessary. And they're necessary because what Paul is trying to accomplish is to say, I want to make you an offering to God. That's how Paul speaks of his ministry, not just to the Romans, but again, more broadly to the Gentiles. Let's listen to verse 16 again. He says, grace was given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus, not just to the Romans, but to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of his ministry as priestly service. Priests in the Old Testament were mediators. They would go and make offerings to God on behalf of the people. And in the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles, which Paul's ministry and his service to the Gentiles was a ministry of proclamation. He's proclaiming the truths of God's word. It was a ministry of, of writing. He wrote letters to give them more reminders of God's words, a, a ministry of reminder. And in that ministry to the Gentiles, Paul is making an offering of the Gentiles. He is offering is the Gentiles, but I want to add another layer to that, that his offering is the Gentiles who then turn around and are an offering. So he's saying, hey, I want to, my ministry is such that God is working through these means to, to produce a people who we could offer up to God and say, here's a people that are wholly yours. But what are those people doing? They're, they're doing chapter 12, verse 1, right? They're saying, in view of God's mercy, let me offer myself present my life as a sacrifice to God. And so look at it. Paul's presenting a sacrifice and an offering, and they're saying, no, we're the sacrifice and offering to in that. It's like they are the ones who offer themselves, and that's the work of the gospel. That Paul's saying, he's going to use me as a means to get these people to a place where they're saying, we're all in, God. We're totally yours. We're wholly yours. You can do what you want with us. That's the work of the gospel, or more precisely, it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel ministry that Paul is carrying out. This offering is acceptable to God because notice the connection again because it's sanctified by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that draws and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to present our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Think of the language that Paul is using through here and what that would mean. Paul speaks of priestly service and an offering. Right? That's worship language. Paul is not suggesting in this that now all of a sudden that we still need a priest needed for offering, that we need a priest for our worship. No, we know in the New Testament and under the New Covenant, clearly we have one great high priest. We don't need any other priest. It's Jesus. And they would come later and say, you yourselves are a kingdom of priests, which we could spend a lifetime on those words themselves. No, he's not suggesting that we need a priest for making an offering. No, the priestly service that he is offering is a declaration of the gospel and reminders of the gospel, which is needed because what God uses is those means in order to produce chapter 12, verse 1 in individuals, right? He uses the means of gospel proclamation and gospel reminders to produce a people who would say, here's my life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That the language that he is using is a language of offering and priest is a language of worship. And that's Paul's goal. He wants worship. Worship, the, the assigning to God and knowing of God, of his greatness and glory. It's us ascribing that to him, seeing it's true of him and ascribing him like the greatness that he is worthy of. It's, it's honoring him fully and treasuring him fully in our hearts. That's saying he is great and there is none like him. That kind of worship. And under the new covenant that we have in Christ, that's not a priest that we need offering an animal sacrifice at the temple. That's not worship any longer. It's 12-1, right? It's us coming before God saying, I'm presenting my life as a sacrifice to you. That's, that's all people who have the Holy Spirit being all in with God all the time. That's the worship under the new covenants. It's not a priest offering an animal at the 
at the temple, it's us offering ourselves in worship to God. This offering is directly related to the ministry of the gospel. And notice that he says in verse 15, it's grace that's been given to me. And the end of verse 16, that you might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is present in priest and in offering. The Holy Spirit is present in the preacher and the receiver. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers all of this as fits new covenant worship, where we must worship not just at the temple, but in spirit and in truth, right? Again, notice the link between what is acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Those are necessarily linked in the new covenant. You are not part of the new covenant people of God if the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you. And if the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, he's sanctifying you, making you an acceptable offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul's ministry, this ministry of declaration and of reminder, is meant to be a means of drawing people in to see the greatness and value of Christ as their justification and their righteousness, and empowering them to, in light of that, give their lives as a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. The goal, again, is not merely salvation, but sanctification. The goal is not just initial worship, but lives lived in worship before God. And so verse 16, it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it's we who present our lives. And we have to ask, like, well, which is it? Are we presenting our lives or is the Holy Spirit doing this for us? And we have to say, yes, it's both of those things. That, yes, we have in verse 16, the Holy Spirit is the one who's sanctifying us, making us an acceptable offering. And in light of the mercies of God, we're still doing chapter 12, verse 1. We're saying, I'm presenting my life as a sacrifice and offering to God. That the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ and we're to be transformed by renewing our minds. All those things are true all the time. Hear the words of Ryle again. He says that there are, again, appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which he has begun in the inward man. The Holy Spirit works in, we work out. That's how it works in sanctification. And those things go together. The, The goal of those things is worship of the one true living God. We're being formed and fueled by the Holy Spirit. And as we're formed and fueled by the Holy Spirit, we live transformed lives moment by moment, even eating and drinking to the glory of God. That's our spiritual worship. That's Paul's goal. That ought to be our goal. That we live lives of spiritual worship before God, that we together have a life of spiritual worship. And so Paul and his priestly service as a ministry of the gospel is a means, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's at work for the sake of these Gentiles. And, and he's going to broaden it a little bit further. He said, all right, Romans, here's my ministry to you. It's been a little bit broader to the, to the Gentiles at large, but we're going to broaden it even further. His ministry and offering of the Gentiles leads him to the place where he says in verse 17 that in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I, I have reason to boast, you could say. Now, in chapter 3, verse 27, he, he said, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. And then here in chapter 15, verse 17, he's like, let me boast for a second. (laughs) All right, so what's the deal, Paul? Is it excluded or is it not excluded? Well, boasting is excluded in chapter 3 when he says, hey, you're you're boasting to think that you can bring yourself before God? That somehow you could amass some sort of resume enough to have right standing before God on your own power and strength? That kind of boasting, it is absolutely excluded. It has no place before God. You could make that boast. It really wouldn't be a boast. It would be puffed away by the breath of the Lord in the end. You have no right standing through that boast. But that's not what he's speaking about here. And Paul knew chapter 3, verse 27. He wrote it. He he knows that that's true. Here, what Paul is boasting is not something that he has done. He's not boasting in some sort of work. He's not boasting in his resume. What's his boast? He, He makes it really clear with those words that he starts verse 17 with, in Christ Jesus. His boast, his exaltation, his pride of his, in his work is in Christ Jesus. You see, from first to last, Paul sees his ministry as both enabled and empowered by the Spirit of God. He he says in verse 15, right, it's by grace that's given to me. In verse 17, it's Christ in me. His work is Christ through him. The the fruit of his work is Christ's accomplishment in him. The, The glory is God's. It's not his. And that's why he boasts. And indeed, if if that is our boast, and that is the only correct boast, then then there is no too strong of a boast there, right? Uh, Of what Christ has enabled, empowered, accomplished, and is doing in and through us. That's not ours. Now, what do we have that we haven't received? And so he boasts, knowing, "I, I haven't received, or I haven't done something that I haven't received. It's Christ that's at work in me. And so my boast is actually a boast in him. And he says, like, man... 
I have reason for this boast to be proud of my work. Verse 18, he continues, for I will venture to speak, I will not venture to speak of anything except, and here's why he can boast, because he's not venturing to speak of anything except this, what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 5, why he wrote this letter to them? Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I've received grace, there it is again, not my work, it's God at work in me, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And here he's saying, this is my ministry, it's not what I have done, it's what Christ has accomplished through me to bring about the very thing that he had set me out to do, so it's Christ's work from first to last Paul is shining the spotlight on his work because he's not trying to shine it on him because he's trying to shine it on the the work of Christ in and through him, what he's accomplished. That's why he's shining the spotlight here. Look at what Christ has done. And I think he could go back and say, as he said in other places, like I'm the least of the apostles, man. I'm I'm the worst of the worst that he could have picked and yet somehow he's picking me. And what does that do? It just highlights even further the mercy of God to me and is being spread out, the grace that's extended through me. So the spotlight is shining here, but it's not shining anywhere near Paul. If we were to see this and be like, Paul, what are you doing putting the light on you? He'd be ashamed of that. Like, no way. What are you doing? I'm not shining it on me. Like, point it to Christ. Look at what he's done. Amen. And look at what he's done. He says that he's accomplished these things through me. That Gentiles, nations are brought into obedience by word and deed. Christ set out to obtain a people, to get a bride. And what Paul is saying here is that Christ is getting his girl. In me and through me, the gospel keeps going out and Christ keeps getting her. He keeps obtaining his prize. Verse 19, he says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Like That's how extensive the work and accomplishment of Jesus is, that even through a guy like Paul, that this ministry of obtaining a people for his glory has been successful from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. We don't know where Illyricum is probably, but I have a little map up here. This will give us an idea of where it is. Uh, Illyricum is up here where you see Illyria, all the way up to almost like the northern part of Italy. Jerusalem, way down here. This is what Christ is accomplishing. Paul's life and in ministry, like if you look at it on the radar, it's just a blip on the screen, and yet look at what God is accomplishing in and through this ministry. And he wants us to know, it wasn't me, Christ in me. And this is how Christ got and is getting his bride, through the word going out, through them believing, hearing, and through living lives of worship to God through powers of signs and wonders. There were signs and wonders in Egypt, and what did God do with those signs and wonders? He obtained for himself a people. He redeemed himself a people. Or we could sum it up by those last words by saying, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that words and deeds and signs are all by the Spirit. Paul is saying, my ministry, it's by the Spirit. Gentile obedience, it's by the Spirit. First and last, how is this being enabled, empowered, and continued to be accomplished? By the Spirit. God is doing this work. Paul looks at his ministry and he says, look at what God has done. From Jerusalem to Illyricum, I fulfilled my ministry. That's what he says in verse 19. I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Again, he's not saying that in all that region, that every single individual is saved in all those areas. What he is saying is that the gospel has gone out in those areas and has taken root. That they are people who now we could call them reached in a sense. That they are churches existing in those regions and that those churches are then fanning out, making disciples of the nations, people around them. That's what's happening. So Paul evangelized, he planted churches, and then he did the work of strengthening those churches as he moved on to further places. His focus and his work as an apostle was was a little bit more specific. He was focusing on founding churches and equipping others to build on top of that. So verse 20 and 21 makes sense in light of this, right? He he says, I fulfilled this ministry and, and I want to move on. And this, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
He is not saying, I don't want to do any work or ministry where Christ has been named or he wouldn't be writing the letter to the Romans. Or he wouldn't have revisited some of the places he revisited. But he is saying that there, there's something specific that's going on here in, in my life as an apostle. That my commission before God. So Paul's ambition here is to plant where there's no church. To, to, to get the gospel where there's no gospel witness. To get Christ's name to where it's not named. So that he might be known there. His ambition is informed by, what does he say? He, he quotes Isaiah. He goes back to the Old Testament because he loves it. His ambition is informed by and driven by the Old Testament, the scriptures, in Isaiah chapter 52. And it matches what Christ commissioned him for in, in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, look at the similarity between Isaiah and Acts 9. It's like Paul was meditating on Isaiah and thinking about the the words that Christ gave to him in Isaiah 9. And they're matching up, and so he makes his ambition a little bit clear here to the Romans in light of that. He says, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That seems to match a little bit what Paul has said here when he quotes Isaiah, that those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. They, they go together. And so the Old Testament purposes of God and Paul's obedience to God, they're aligned here. And so while his ambition and calling as an apostle to the Gentiles might be a little bit more specific than what he would say needs to be necessary of all, what he does want is he wants everybody to catch that ambition whether they're carrying it out in the same way as him or not. Not all are going to do exactly what Paul has done. Indeed, that wouldn't make sense in Paul's letters, right? He leaves Timothy places. He he tells Titus, you need to appoint some elders. You need to sink some roots down deep. You stay there, remain, make sure that no wolves cry. Like he does that all the time. He wants to make sure that he equips churches, that he has strong foundations there. Like he cares about that deeply, informs churches. He equips saints. He does all that. So he's not saying that everyone is going to be about this exact same thing specifically as I'm about. He doesn't need everyone's execution of this ambition to be like his. But what he does want for saints, what he does want for churches, is that their ambition to match his. Not necessarily their execution, but the ambition ought to be the same. That's why he's writing them here. In verse 24, he's going to come along and say, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to what? To be helped by you. He's telling them, here's my ministry, here's what I'm doing, and and you need to jump on board with this. You need to catch the vision for this as well, that I've ministered like this to you guys, I've ministered like this to Gentiles more broadly, and I want to even go further, where Christ has not been named, and I need you in on this. He wants their support. And so he's using Isaiah, showing that this is God's idea, God's purpose, and he's saying, this is what God has commissioned me for and sent me for, so join in this mission with me. Paul, certainly he views his life and ministry as part of the means that God is using to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 52, to do exactly what Christ had sent the church to do in making all nations disciples of the one true living God, of discipling people for Christ where he would be known as Lord. But here's what he also employs here. He employs the church. He is not saying these things to just tell them what I'm planning to doing. He's saying these things and saying, can you join me in this ambition? This is the ambition that I have. You may not execute it the same way, but this is the ambition that you ought to have. That Christ be named where he is not named. You know what Paul does here is he views the church not as adjacent to ministry, not as adjacent to missions and mission strategy, but as a means. He sees the church not as kind of an extracurricular activity to the, to the work of mission. He sees the church as the mission. They are the ones that are carrying this forward. They are the means. Now, Tim Keller says this, that this also means then that the church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. That's the ambition that Paul wants caught in churches. That's the ambition he wants the Romans to catch so that when he comes and says, I'm trying to go to Spain, Christ isn't known there. Illyricum, we got. Spain, we don't have. He's not known there. What do I want you to do? I want you to jump on board with me so that we have, we have this shared ambition. I'm going there. God has commissioned me there. Send me. That might mean some money. It definitely means their prayers. They might send some people with them. You might come along and be like, hey, I'm going to go. How can I help? And like, come on. Let's check this thing out together. But he doesn't say, you know what, church, you're on the sidelines of this mission strategy. He's like, no, you're part of it. You are the mission strategy. Carry this out. God's purpose is that nations here understand worship. There are means to that. And by God's incredible grace, he extends the privilege of carrying out that mission 
through his church, we get the privilege of carrying out the purpose and intentions of God for all nations to bow and worship for him by being those who share this ambition that Christ be named where he is not named. Even if our execution of the mission isn't exactly as Paul's, our ambition should align with his clearly. Amen. Is that where your ambition lies? Perhaps your ambition is too small. It seems like a pretty large thing to say we're on board with and our ambition is this exact same thing to make Christ known where he is not known. Sometimes I think we just aim too short. Our ambition is too narrow. We're trying for something that's not far enough. I love these words from John Stott where he says, Ambitions for God, however, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. Now here's what he's not saying. Don't get that small things and small ambitions for God are unimportant to you. That's not what he's getting at. Those things matter. Eating and drinking and living to the glory of God matter. Ambition to make my lunch be a, a worship to God and worthy to God is ambition. Like, I want Christ to be named in this lunch. That's a good ambition. That's right. He's not saying that's unimportant and don't care about that. But he does say this because in light of, again, how worthy God is, how can we ever be content that, we, that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? No. Once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. Yes, our lunch. And yes, in Dragontown. That should be our ambition. It's all of those things. And if our God is that great, then our ambition could never be too large. We want Christ to be named where he's not named. That seems really impossible. You remember, some of us have been to Dragontown. We've walked the streets. We've seen those people, and it's overwhelming. They're so far away. But they're not far away. My God is in us. And this ambition that we have to, to have churches planted there it is not too small, and it's not too big for God to accomplish. That's the ambition God wants for us. William Carey said we expect great things from God and we attempt great things for God. That's, that captures the ambition we ought to have. And let's be a church that attempts great things for God. And after all, we're living in view of the mercies of God. The one who sent his son, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose victoriously, reigns eternally, is present with his church, as he says, to go make disciples. We're living in light of that. In light of that, our, our ambitions cannot be too big. And in light of that, that means that right here and right now, in moment by moment, we can live with this ambition to glorify God. We do that by walking in obedience to what he's called us to here. At least part of what the obedience is for the church together is to celebrate together, to take together the Lord's Supper. We do this in obedience because we care about the glory of Christ. We partake together. So if you're a believer, if you're in Christ Jesus, as he is your only hope, you've trusted in him, he is your justification, your righteousness, then take this meal and remember what he has done for you. It's a past and present and future thing. Look at what he's done. Remember that he's with you. You're united to him. And look forward to the day when he's going to come triumphantly and reign and rule as king finally and fully and forever and with us. Amen. And take this meal. If you're not a Christian... Don't take this meal. Take Christ. Repent and believe in him. And, and we can talk to you about what that's like or talk to another believer and we can get you ready to take this meal next time in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you reveal by your spirit if we are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. Remind us that we are saved to be sent. Thank you for writing boldly to remind us of this. Thank you for the gift of you writing to us and that we can gather with our brothers and sisters as a means of sanctifying grace. For those of us in here now who are languishing, exhort us to live in this word, to turn to you in prayer, 
prioritize gathering with your people over our short-sighted activities, which are many times momentary, God, and centered around our own idolatries. Thank you for making our sacrifices acceptable by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And may we always turn to you and deflect praise to you when we actually live in goodness and obedience. God, use our words and deeds to bring you glory to every corner of this planet that you created because you're worthy. Send us to these places where your name has not been named. Use today's word to convict and send people right now to follow you to the ends of the world. God, raise our ambitions so that we can agree wholeheartedly in verse 21. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. God, send us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.